Our first scripture reading today is taken from the Songbook of the Bible, the Book of Psalms. It's Psalm 40, verses 1 to 11, and I invite you to follow along. It's found on page 513 in your Pew Bible. It's Psalm 40, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be counted. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Here I am. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. See, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today is taken from the Gospel according to John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 29 to 42. I invite you to follow along with the Bible that you have in your hand. John, chapter 1, 29 to 42. You see, last week we meditated on Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. And this week, we see Jesus' baptism exactly the way John the Baptist had experienced which has its own special emphasis. It's because in this, the fourth gospel, Jesus' baptism comes to us solely through the testimony of John, which is then followed by John encouraging two of his own disciples to follow Jesus, after which one of those disciples tell Peter about Jesus. This is beginning with verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. The next day, he, meaning John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, 
After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing him with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look! He is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that, that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it is from this text here that we find the question, what are you looking for? Which is the question Jesus asked of the two men who seemed to be following him. However, much to our surprise to this question, they answered Jesus' question in effect, oh, well, depends. Where are you staying? This is pretty typical, isn't it? Jesus asked us a question that cuts to the core of why we're here on this earth, what it's all about, and what we are going to do that makes a difference, and we are worried about accommodations. Come to think of it, though, it actually sounded like a logical concern for travelers. And to the disciples watching from the sideline, Jesus did seem to be a traveler. Now, if you are planning a road trip with the family and the dog, you probably want to know where you're staying down the line, wouldn't you? However, the question Jesus asked Andrew and his friend had absolutely nothing to do with accommodations. It was a simple, direct inquiry. With the New International Version putting it this way, what do you want? And the New Revised Standard Version that we have, what are you looking for? But then they answered the question, with the question, where are you staying? As if that had anything to do with anything. Now, why didn't they tell Jesus what they wanted? I guess they could have been honest and said, uh, we're just wondering if you knew where to find the nearest Starbucks. How about a white chocolate mocha? Or do you think that in the present political uncertainty, we should divest our portfolios of tech stocks and move into mutual funds? Well, the truth is, it's quite possible that they, these two disciples, like many of us, 
just didn't quite know what they wanted or what they were looking for. Perhaps they had a, a vague sense that they wanted what most people want these days. A comfortable lifestyle, good health, children who are successful, security for our golden years, and to some have some kind of fun along the way. Oh, oh yes, one more thing, help our fellow human beings. Well, it's an afterthought, of course. You see, during the course of Jesus' ministry, it would become blatantly evident just what some of his so-called followers were looking for. We know, for example, as his reputation spread, there were the mobs that crowded around him with various diseases and ailments. They were looking for healing. Or as his popularity spread, there were the religious authorities who began to question his theology and orthodoxy. They were looking for a fight. Or as he performed more miracles, they were the crowds of hangers-on just there for the show. They were looking for entertainment. Or, as his teaching and wisdom spread, there were seekers, like the rich young ruler in John's Gospel later on, who tried to second-guess his meanings. They were looking for an easy way into heaven. Or, as his fame grew and his ability to feed large crowds became the talk of the town, there were lots of people with needs and wants who followed in his wake. They were looking for the loaves and fishes, you name it. Remember, when Jesus went off by himself to the mountains and was lost in prayer, his own disciples came and interrupted him, saying, everyone is looking for you. You know what? The disciples were right. Everyone was looking for Jesus for the living spirit of God in their lives, even if they did, didn't realize it. It was obvious that the answer to Jesus' soul-searching question, what are you looking for, just couldn't be found in all the usual places. Each one of them had a hole in their heart that only Christ could fill, and it's still true today. You see, Jesus knew there were lots of wrong reasons as well as good reasons for spiritual searches. Our world abounds today, as then, with counterfeit saviors and messiahs. When Jesus confronted these two would-be disciples with this haunting question, what are you looking for? The answer he received may sound strange to us, but I don't think we need to treat it cynically because it might have actually been a pretty good start. Rabbi, they replied, where are you staying? It could very well have meant, where are you making your home in this world? Let us join you and be your students. You see, when Jesus responded to this request, his answer was actually an invitation. Come and see. And he took them to where he was staying. They stayed with him for a whole day. And in fact, as it turned out, they actually stayed with him 
for the rest of their lives. In his book of sermons, God's Trombones, which our soul was in last Sunday's Welcome Church Benefit Concert, as Alita Fontroy mentioned and quoted at length, James Johnson begins the story of creation by writing, God stepped out into space and looked around, and God said, I'm lonely. I think I'll make me a world. Now, this may not be exactly how the writer of Genesis put it, but I think Johnson's creation story has some basic biblical truth nonetheless. Diana Gibson, the former pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Palo Alto, California, once said, why else would God start off the Ten Commandments with, love me with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? Why? Except that God was lonely. And that's why God created a world. This commandment also identified by Jesus as one of the two most important commandments makes it clear that after creating the world, God wants something from the world in return. God wants to be in relation with us in return. And I really believe that is what happened to these two men and ten more like them later. However, sometimes we may not want to respond the same way that these two did. That we want nothing from Jesus at all. Perhaps we want him simply to leave us alone. No challenges, Lord. No impossible ethical ideals, God. No talk about that cross stuff. We don't want to be your student. Thank you very much. And we may simply respond that way because we know deep down inside that the claims of Christ on our lives may at times provoke rebellion and also discipline. The Lord might not be as indulgent as the parents of a difficult boy whose birthday was approaching. The parents were discussing what to give him for his birthday present. The mother said, let's buy him a bicycle. Well, said the father, maybe, but do you think it will improve his behavior? Probably not, the mother said, but it would spread it over a wider area. You see, the point is this. Disciples are those who want to stay with Jesus, wherever that may be and wherever it may take them. You hit the road with Jesus, believe me, you're not likely to be staying in the best hotel in town, for sure. In fact, Jesus may just invite you to take up a cross and remind you that unless you do, you can't even be his disciple. Yet, if you remember, Jesus ironically calls this cross life the abundant life in John 10.10. 10. John knows what we want and, and what we're looking for, as Jesus tells us. We might call it a comfortable lifestyle. Jesus calls it the abundant life. So when Jesus calls us to come and see, this is what he's talking about. Come and see what abundant life is all about. Come and see what a life of meaning and purpose and God's service really looks like. This last Wednesday would have been Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 91st birthday. And when he was asked to come and see 
I'm pretty sure he had no idea that the place Jesus wanted him to see was the inside of a Birmingham jail. The jail was not a particularly charming or comfortable place to be when he was locked up in it during April of 1963. You see, King was part of the civil rights protests being staged in that city and was inciting the wrath of police commissioner Bull Connor who pledged to incarcerate every African-American who challenged segregation. On Good Friday afternoon, King was among 54 marchers who were arrested and thrown in jail for violating an injunction against, quote, parading, demonstrating, boycotting, trespassing, and picketing. They were forbidden even to engage in conduct customarily known as kneelings in churches. Well, we all know King didn't receive any first-class treatment in jail. In fact, he was singled out for isolation and denied the chance to make phone calls or talk to his lawyers. He had no mattress or linen and was sleeping on metal slabs. And yet over that Easter weekend, deep in solitary confinement, down in what was called a hole, sealed off from his fellow prisoners and an outside world, Martin Luther King was staying with Jesus. It was while he was locked up that King wrote one of the most significant Christian documents of the civil rights movement, his letter from Birmingham jail. I'm sure it was during that time in jail that King really experienced what King David experienced and expressed in Psalm 40 that we read earlier. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I believe it was in the Birmingham jail that King realized Jesus was there. With him every step of the way, and had given him a task to accomplish in his name. And that's how he could say with the psalmist that happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods, and have peace and purpose. And it's because we are told that God is not necessarily looking for sacrifice and offerings, but actually an open year, and year to hear what God is saying to us, so that his law could be within our hearts. Of course, the rest, as we say, is history for Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. You see, discovering the spirit of God, the presence of Christ in our life is very seldom experienced as a blinding light or a burning bush, for that matter. Growing our soul, filling our spirit with the right nutrients and nourishment is very much a lifelong process. The Bible tells us at least four different shapes and sizes of conversion. There were gradual conversions, like that of the Apostle John. There were crisis conversions, like that of the Apostle Paul. There were uh, also series of crises, followed by conversion. 
like that of the Apostle Peter, and then also a crisis conversion at the end of a gradual process like that of the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, which one of these are you? Sometimes it takes long years of sitting at the rabbi's feet, listening to his teachings, before we can truly claim our discipleship, before we can kneel at the foot of the cross. However, we all must first ask this question to have Jesus teach us, that we are willing to listen and learn, and then to invite the Spirit into our heart before we can even confess, Jesus, save us. In 1968, at the Ecumenical Council of Churches meeting in Uppsala, Metropolitan Nations of Natakia in Syria spoke these powerful words. He says, without the Holy Spirit, God is far away. Christ stays in the past. The gospel is a dead letter. The church is simply an organization. Authority, a matter of domination. Mission, a matter of propaganda. The liturgy, no more than evocation. Christian living, a slave morality. But, he says, but, I'm so glad he didn't stop there. But in the Holy Spirit, the cosmos is resurrected and groans with the birth pangs of the kingdom. The risen Christ is there. The gospel is the power of life. The church shows forth life of the Trinity. Authority is a liberating service. Mission is a Pentecost. The liturgy is both memorial and anticipation. Human action is deified. Well, where are you today in your spiritual journey? Are you continuing your spiritual search to attain your lifetime mission of actually growing a soul? But the real question here is, are you staying with Jesus? You see, Jesus invites us to come and see what he is up to. And he promises that if we stay with him, we will have an awesome and life-changing experience, as well as abundant life. When Jesus finally asks you by name, what are you looking for? I pray you are able to give the only answer that satisfies. I'm looking for Jesus, the Lamb of God. Amen.